and welcome to A Barrel of Oranges, the podcast where history and pop culture collides. I'm your historian and host, Kimberly Sherman, and I'm joined by my sister, Pam Sherman, who is our resident literature and film geek and expert. She enjoys reading about the gothic and the weird. Hi, Pam. Hi, all. Nice to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your introduction. How are things going, Pam? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain too much been pretty busy lately for me, uh, teaching mid-semester is getting a bit busy, but we'd really like some consistent weather, I think, here in Southeast Carolina, North Carolina. Yep. Yeah. It just kind of warms up. We get lots of pollen on our cars, and then it cools back down again. woo Yeah. A place where you can experience all four seasons in 48 hours. <laughs> At least Welcome I have- to Wilmington. At least I have coffee to get me through it all. Yes, thank coffee goodness for coffee. Coffee is the most and more important meal of the day. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of meals, today we're going to be talking about food and drink and medicine on board pirate ships in the early 18th century. Of course, inspired by our lovely crew of the Revenge in Our Flag Means Death, we're going to talk about course, some of the things that they consume in the TV show, but also specifically what our historical pirates would have been consuming and also specifically what kind of medicines they might have needed at the time. Let's get to it. Pirates, ye be warned. There be spoilers ahead. So throughout season one of Our Flag Means Death, we do see the crew of the Revenge encounter a number of different foods and uh, moments when they are sharing meals together. What are some of the things that we kind of notice them eating and consuming at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got kind of the one that I immediately think of is when Ed and Steed had their scones together at the end of episode four. Yeah, um, in the crow's nest, those With look really yummy. Marmalade, oh. they look really yummy. Um, also, like kind of think about when they're on the French ship in episode five, and they're having this like veritable feast. Yeah, which yeah, <laughs> being ready to eat escargot and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's see. Uh, oh, well, they have their uh, snake snack <laughs> when they go on their yeah. little treasure hunt little, adventure. Little impromptu snake snack. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. And, of course, you know, there is the uh, potential for Blackbeard's Bar and Grill and other delicacies and delights. He could be a chef. Equipment. Yeah. <laughs> he could do anything. <laughs> let's see here. Uh, and, of course, we, we can't forget... Uh, Roach's famous 40 orange glazed cake, which is kind of a problem in episode, what is it? Episode seven. Uh, And the whole reason why they end up having to stop in St. Augustine to try to get their hands on more oranges because, well, the Swede ends up with scurvy, right? Yeah. His teeth keep falling out. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk a bit about that today, too. A little bit about scurvy and nutritional deficiencies and that sort of thing, uh, which was something rather common, not only amongst pirates, but anybody at sea and and even those who are not at sea, you know, those who might be in colder climates uh, without the access to things like uh, like citrus. So, yeah, 
Um, Basically, hmm. living in the past was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, I mean, a few years ago, uh, we had a, our last major hurricane that came through here in eastern North Carolina was Hurricane Florence. Uh, we've had a couple smaller ones since then, but that one, we lost power for like a week. Yeah. And I mean, we just about had a mutiny on our hands within our household uh, between the two of us and our parents and, and all of the pets and everything. And, you know, it was September. We had absolutely no, uh, you know, no refrigeration for food, no uh, ability to cool down the house or anything like yeah. that. And, you know, it's well over 90 degrees and humidity was extremely high. And we were all like, how did people do it? How did people do it? <laughs> Oh, so they yeah. didn't do it. They died young. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah, there's probably other stuff too. What what else? I'm think trying to think of what else we see them consuming. Of course, drinking, um, drinking alcohol tea and, and alcohol. tea. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, With sugar in their yeah. tea. Yeah. Um, that was a luxury mm-hmm. having sugar for your tea. Absolutely. Mhm. Um, mhm. Something that pirates could have definitely gotten if they were raiding a ship that was carrying sugar from the Caribbean Sugar Islands. Let's yeah. see. They eat lunch in episode five, five? whenever they're asking Jim if, if they're a mermaid, oh, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. They're, so they're kind of having a... Some lunch. <laughs> I don't really remember what there. they were actually eating, but... <laughs> And of course, Izzy comes along and says, you don't get food when you've been invaded. <laughs> and then he just kind of walks off and everybody's like, whatever. And, <laughs> and Ivan just stand there and don't enforce it's anything It's one of my favorite Izzy scenes. I love it. I love it. And then, um, you know, um, yeah. uh, we John asking Izzy to make him a cup of tea. <laughs> I love that too. Yeah. There's some other things I know. Definitely. Well, of course, there's the breakfast between Steed and Ed and Calico Jack. And of course, the little tea party that they have in episode one in which the royal navy officers come over (laughs) to to entertain by steed and crew so a variety of things yeah well essentially when we try to understand what pirates ate in the early 18th century it's kind of hard to pin down really what they were regularly eating because in many cases it's kind of like what they could get their hands on And a lot of the records that we have from the time period don't tell us much about specific things that they ate, but we can kind of make some guesses based on what sailors in the Royal Navy and the Merchant Marine were consuming. And most accounts also record that pirates often had better access to fresher foods and luxury items because they were able to raid other vessels and get their hands on those things more often than, say, the Navy, who is dealing with just like rations and that sort of thing. And we're going to talk about some of the problems with of course, having to work with food storage on a leaky vessel that is quite damp and, and yeah, rather nasty at times. So when we look at like pirates and what they actually pulled off of the vessels that they captured for prizes, sometimes the most valuable items that they looted were foodstuffs, either foodstuffs, spices, medicines, all those kinds of things could be incredibly uh, valuable. And of course, were things that they sought out because it could add some variety to their meals and it could also help (laughs) some flavor. Yes, definitely. And of course could also help with any kind of illnesses or other issues they might encounter at the same time. So definitely important. One historian says that by guaranteeing food and drink and creating a sort of welfare system, pirates attempted to protect their health, enhance recruitment and promote loyalty within the group. 
And I think, you know, that would be a pretty good uh, recruiting device, you know, by saying, you know, come over here, we have better food. <laughs> you know, if you're going to yeah. be at sea for a while, uh, might not be a bad idea. So like I said, one of the big problems that uh, we see pirates encountering, as well as other people who were aboard ships in the 18th century, is the problem of food storage. And on ships, of course, there's constant dampness from seawater and humidity and that made keeping simple pantry staples like flour and dried beans, which typically would, would last a good while, it means that those things are going to mold pretty quickly. So, yuck. Gross. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not really seeing. And also, as just a quick disclaimer, you might want to wait on eating your next meal until after you finish <laughs> listening to this episode because it's going to get a little gross here and there. No consumption so, of snacks allowed. Yeah, exactly. So sailing in, you know, warmer climates like around the Caribbean, it made it nearly impossible to keep even fresh fruit and meat on board from spoiling because of just the heat involved in that. Of course, we've got a period before refrigeration. And if you're going to preserve food, it's either going to be pickled or salted, which is just kind of like to think about, (laughs) you know, like having just to rely on that for a long time. And also, you know, I don't know how this would impact things. This is just kind of me going off the cuff here. But, you know, that much like salt Mm -hmm. intake as well from that. I'm like, hmm, does that provide... Some problems, potentially. Yeah, (laughs) interesting. That's just an aside. Exactly. Even fresh water was something that was pretty much inaccessible. Of course, you know, at sea, you're just surrounded by water that you can't drink. Fresh water that might be brought on board ships and put in barrels, it pretty much turned bad very quickly. You know, you could be, especially if you're on a longer voyage, it would form this gross green algae that uh, would, you know, kind of form in the barrels itself. It would get stinky and led to really often deadly outbreaks of dysentery and the bloody flux, which you don't, you don't want to know about. But this meant that seamen really had to rely on drinking alcohol most of the time. And of course, that often gives us that kind of uh, stereotype, I guess you could say, of of the rum swigging pirate. Um, So, you know, Um, even the, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, imagine kind of how maddening that would be if you got really thirsty and just wanted a good drink of water and you're surrounded yeah. by water that you can't drink and all you can drink is alcohol that yeah. makes you thirstier. Like, Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the Royal Navy even, they had to ration out uh, a certain amount of alcohol per day for every sailor mm-hmm. on board their vessels. They had usually a ration of a half pint of rum and a gallon of beer for every sailor every day. Um, and simply because alcohol couldn't really spoil, it would last a longer period of time. Um, beer and rum, of course, could be consumed straight up as they were, but they also sometimes would take rum and mix it with a bit of cinnamon and spices and even a little bit of fresh water, sometimes add in a little bit of lime in there for, you know, of course, that citrus element, and you get what they called grog. Um, so their own kind of little cocktail there, I guess you could say. But certainly, I'm sure that if you were like constantly consuming rum and beer and you were like, I just need variety, adding some spices in there would be quite nice, potentially. So... Alongside that, of course, we have the fact that meats and so forth that were brought on board ships were typically preserved in some way, shape, or form, either dried or salted in a way that they'd be preserved for the longer period. There was even one account that I was reading earlier this week that was talking about, I think it was Bartholomew Roberts, of course, kind of predecessor to the Golden Age Pirates. 
He actually demanded a ransom, I think, at one point in time of like 500 head of cattle because he and his crew were so desperate for like fresh meat and fresh beef. Um, They really wanted snakes. (laughs) They really wanted steak for dinner. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, again, uh, nutritional deficiencies like iron, all those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. I'm sure that would be a big problem if you weren't consuming, you know, red meat and things like that regularly. So dried meats, uh, ship's biscuits, which we often also refer to as hardtack, um, were typically part of a pirate's diet. Uh, hardtack, really kind of what it sounds like. They're kind of like crackery biscuit things that were incredibly hard. Sometimes you would soak them in like warm water or tea or something like that. And yeah, they're just not great. I have a feeling but, it tastes like on another level of worse than like unleavened bread, you know, we've yeah, tried exactly. that before. Like Yeah, yeah. I think uh one source that I was reading said if you kinda wanna get a sense of what it was like, just go eat some wasa crackers. If you're familiar with those, they're just pretty much like a very basic water cracker, no salty seasoning, nothing like that. But yeah. And it gets worse, though. Um, (laughs) They did what they could sometimes to be resourceful and, of course, use the staples they could get their hands on. And sometimes it was simply about making foods palatable. So, you know, here we are with this very basic amount of stuff that they're trying to keep preserved. How do we make that taste better, especially if it had been pickled or salted? I'm sure that got old after a while. So one popular dish that they came up with became known as salmagundi. And I did a little bit of looking into what Salmagundi was and what it is today. And it's a little confusing because I think today, actually, Salmagundi is more of a salad, kind of like a precursor to the Cobb salad, from what I could tell. It has a variety of like uh, dried and kind of like cured meats that are in there. You have like your fresh fruits and vegetables, and then you have hard boiled eggs and it's all kind of like arranged pretty on a plate. One thing I read said it was kind of like an English version of the Niswa salad kind of situation. And then also whenever I was reading more about Salmagundi specifically within kind of the maritime context, it also talked about it being like a stew. But in this case, instead of kind of like the salad where it's like everything's thrown into the salad, you throw everything into the stew. So essentially just kind of throwing in various meats and vegetables, whatever you could get your hands on, whatever you had in your pantry, season it as much as you possibly could to cover up, you know the pickled taste (laughs) or salted taste exactly and cook it well um and actually also the the word salmagundi has a couple of different origin points it's mostly from french and the name might have come from an old french word meaning a hodgepodge of meats or fish cooked in wine so yeah could be pretty decent and i'm guessing if you you know we're really kind of desperate and wanted to have something a little different you just throw it all in a pot and hope it tastes good and and hope to god that you have a good ship's cook Exactly. They can do, actually exactly. do something with all that stuff. Yeah. So aboard merchant vessels, it, one source of the food that they were fed was literally sickening. Um, the salted beef and pork that were the staples of the seaman's diet came out of barrels dry and hard at best, putrid and maggoty at worst. Sailors closed their eyes before eating the moldy <laughs> and stinking ship's biscuits to avoid seeing the maggots and weevils wiggling through them. Oh. <laughs> Who knew you were going to listen to a horror podcast today? (laughs) I just can't imagine. I don't want to think about that. But yes, um, I would prefer my crackers weevil-free. Thank you. (laughs) 
Oh, so <laughs> I don't think the revenge pirates in OFMD had to deal with this kind of shit. So um, <laughs> it's a little, a little more, um, let's say, uh, sophisticated. <laughs> Steve Bonnet would be appalled. Um, and That's literally, true. it makes me wonder what the real Steve Bonnet was thinking about all of this, because he's coming from kind of a, a situation of luxury and now, you know, having to deal with the very real realities of life on a ship. That's got to be pretty rough. So. Yeah. So uh, one thing that we can look at as an interesting source for understanding a little bit more about the food culture on board pirate ships, we can actually turn to archaeology because in the late 1990s, underwater archaeology teams began working on an 18th century shipwreck at Beaufort, North Carolina, which is just up the road from us here in Wilmington. And it was thought to be the site of the wreckage of Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge, which of course became the flagship of the fleet that he and Steed Bonnet sailed in and under between 1717 and 1718. And the identity of the vessel, of course, has since since been confirmed, and archaeologists have uncovered and surfaced items from the 1718 wreck. And a lot of those items are related to food storage, preparation, consumption, and even some medical necessities, which we'll come back to talking about here in a few moments as well. So just for some examples, the QAR archaeologists have recover, recovered sherds, which are kind of like, uh, like pot sherds. They're basically small pieces of... Uh, pottery and ceramic fragments. They have found those that would be beverage storages, uh, bowls, other types of ceramics. They have found glass bottles and flask fragments, as well as whole glass onion bottles, which are some of my favorites because they literally look, they're kind of like the actual shape of an onion. Mm, yeah. um, they have found pewter flatware, including chargers and small plates. They have found uh, some of those include hallmarks, including monograms and maker's marks that indicated that they were produced in London. Um, sometimes some of these actually were monogrammed either to reflect which ship that they had been on or even the person who used them. So like mm -hmm. each individual crewman yeah. maybe even having their own stamped pewter plates. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> can just kind of think about like almost like again. I think about kids with like their own individualized plates. <laughs> I can just imagine the revenge crew with their own monogram yeah. plates, and then like somebody like grabbing the wrong plate. And I know the other person being like, "That's my plate, give it back." Somebody would get stabbed in the process, yeah. probably too, with one of those um, uh, <laughs> forks or something, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there are even fragments of very large red earthenware jars that were found. Vessels like that would have been used for storage and transportation of liquids because you would need something that would be waterproof. So a little bit of everything, even, you know, fancier stuff. They even found a, a molded stemware wine glass uh, that was designed and embossed with crowns and diamonds. And this pattern specifically um, was actually created to celebrate the coronation of George the first in 1714. Of course, the monarch that we see represented in OFMD. And of course, there's also fragments and, and hoops from wooden casks that would have held everything from, you know, beer and uh, ale or rum to even flour and beans and that sort of thing. So You've got tons of stuff that actually would be used for food preparation and consumption. As far as food itself, there were also some animal bones found in the wreckage. And of course, these are land animals. So we know that they weren't just like fish that have died off and, you know, kind of swum into the area. At least two dozen well-preserved animal bones have been found so far at the site. Uh, a lot of things like leg and rib bones, some skull fragments, mostly from immature pigs or like suckling pigs that would have probably been good for roasting. And uh, they think that these might have been living animals that were actually on board the QAR. So they were actually, um, <laughs> as uh, Steve, 
Exactly. As Steve Bonnet says in episode one, as they're touring the revenge, the non-humans, um, and you know, those that would have been kind of kept around to be able to then eat, uh, that sort of thing. There were cow bones as well with butcher marks. So we actually know that they were used for eating. Um, and even, uh, unfortunately, the right ulna, uh, so arm bone of a rat, uh, might be an unwanted guest on the ship. Uh, of course, we know that those were quite common uh, in many cases. So, you know, this might be also indicative of like, for example, like low, what we call low yield meats. So um, some of the different bones like from the pigs, for example, were pig's feet, um, which you don't have a lot of meat on there, but they could have been pickled and served, you know, either as a, a dish themselves or put into something like salmagundi and, you know, just kind of added into the seasoning here. So again, not something that I would automatically go for. That's for sure. It doesn't scare me as much though, because we still have pig's feet here in the South. Sure. Exactly. Literally go to the, to the good old Piggly Wiggly uh, (laughs) grocery store and buy those. I would be more worried about other things. Yeah. And well, and also (laughs) like, you know, even growing up, like our grandparents, like my grandfather, our grandfather, he would eat pig's feet all the time. And it was not unheard of to go over to grandma's house one evening and she'd be cooking pig's feet or whatever. And yeah, no, thank you. Not for me, (laughs) but (laughs) so, you know, the conditions on these vessels were not awesome in terms of what they ate, you know, a a variety of things. If they could get their hands on stuff that was maybe on a merchant vessel being taken somewhere else, great. But otherwise, um, nothing to really write home about. So maybe the one, one of the less glamorous aspects of the pirate lifestyle. In terms of looking at medicine and disease and health and that sort of thing, of course, we also have to consider that on board ships you have uh, close and not always incredibly sanitary uh, situations. On merchant vessels, in comparison, one writer said that lice, rats, and cockroaches swarmed the vessels, spreading diseases like typhus, typhoid, and the plague. One passenger in the mid-18th century wrote that the ship's cabins were places of, quote, stench, fumes, horror, vomiting, many kinds of seasickness, fever, dysentery, headache, heat, consumption, boils, scurvy, cancer, mouth rot, and all the like, all of which come from old and sharply salted food and meat, also from very bad foul water, so that many (laughs) die miserably. I mean... Badminton in the first episode said that their that their um, ship smelled like runny cheese. I know. So, so makes you wonder. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, not so great. That's that's a and nice spe- way of putting it. Runny cheese, you know, exactly. Smelling runny old cheese, you know. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, on that note, the Royal Navy, uh, sometimes officials reported that they had trouble actually fighting off pirates if they came across pirates and had to encounter them in battle because their own crews, the actual sailors in the Royal Navy, were so, quote, much disabled by sickness, death and desertion of their own seamen that they couldn't fight against the pirates because they were so sick. (laughs) Clearly, the pirates had the 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 leg up here. The Navy back being in the Navy back then had to have been like such a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Just all the different conditions and like to think that 
like probably some of the pirate ships had way better conditions than yeah, the Navy. Totally. You know? And we're going to keep unpacking that because there are several things that we'll get into in future episodes that talk about that we'll talk about how much better the conditions were on pirate ships um, and really how they created, uh, like I said earlier, one of those quotes mentioning uh, kind of a welfare system for their crew members. So certainly better. I mean, the more and more I read about the Royal Navy, the more I feel like, you know, joining up or being pressed into service was kind of a death sentence, you know, not necessarily because of dying in battle, but just because of the conditions on board these vessels. So not uh, not something I would choose, I don't think. But a surgeon named John Atkins noted that the naval vessel Weymouth was dispatched by the Crown in 1722 to search out a pirate convoy. And when it returned, the ship which had left England with 240 men had now recorded the deaths of 280 in the process. So, you know, of course, had you know, more men had joined on board later, but, you know, they lost more people than they originally set out with. Pretty bad stuff. Privateering vessels were often better in terms of food and health and and just general conditions being better. But there is also indication that some of the captains of those vessels ran their ships like naval vessels. So, you know, really tight control, lots of abuse and that kind of thing that we don't often see sometimes on pirate ships. Certainly there were occupational hazards, and this is something that we'll talk about in the future. One common quote was, quote, that there was the pox above board, the plague between decks, hell in the forecastle, and the devil at the helm. (laughs) So dramatic. Of course, one of the things that we see pop up in episode seven of OFMD is the issue of scurvy. The Swede uh, comes along and, uh, you know, is exhibiting some symptoms that certainly were uh, not uh, well accepted by his crewmates, (laughs) I guess you could say. And uh, we have, of course, the concern over the fact that there are no more oranges left Mm. on board. The revenge... What the, do we attribute that to? <laughs> that what the the lack of oranges? Yeah, exactly. To that forty orange glazed cake. Exactly. That that cake. Um, just as a side note, I think it was in one of the panels for one of the recent comic cons. It was mentioned that the recipe that Samba Shoot came up with for the forty orange glazed cake that Roach makes um, that that recipe has now been made by four thousand people or something <laughs> like that, which is just insane to think about. And I can't wait. At some point in time, Pam and I are going to be tackling this recipe and I hope we'll be able to share it with you all as yeah. well. So and stay that, tuned that on that one. Be, uh, you know, some good motivation to join our Patreon. Exactly. That will be a yeah. Patreon exclusive video yeah. of us making the knows? 40 orange glaze cake <laughs> and, probably and probably failing, failing miserably. a little bit <laughs> miserably. Yeah, exactly. And who knows, you know, we might also try some other 18th century recipes in the meantime. So yeah, if you haven't joined our Patreon, um, we're going to really have some fun stuff planned, especially as we get into the summer. We've got some travel logs that we're going to be sharing. We've got, we have, let's see here. Uh, of course, a monthly newsletter. We have videos that we're going to hopefully do with uh, getting in the kitchen, the pirate kitchen, if you will. And uh, who knows, maybe even some special guests eventually. So we hope to uh, keep it moving. And uh, of course, your support is incredibly helpful for that. 
So back to scurvy. Um, so the Swede, he uh, starts losing his teeth. He is concerned about this. Uh, there are no more oranges aboard the Revenge. So they have to stop off in St. Augustine. Oh, and that's another food moment as well that I forgot uh, to mention earlier is that when the crew led by Black Pete, uh, who has taken charge of this mission, go along <laughs> with Jim and Olawande and the others into St. Augustine, we end up seeing them at the mission where... Jim encounters their grandmother, uh, who happens to be a nun, and they get to have cake. And I've always wanted to know what kind of cake is it? Coming, what kind Nana, of cake coming does Jim's nan make? Uh, so maybe one day we'll find that out. Yeah, that would In be the a, meantime. Good, a good question yeah. for yeah. somebody. Yeah, we'll have to keep that in mind. So scurvy is an acute chronic illness caused by a dietary deficiency of ascorbic acid, or essentially vitamin C. And this was quite common in the 18th century, particularly amongst those on board vessels, sailors who were, uh, you know, taking long sea voyages. And because of the, the lack of time that they would have or the lack of access they would have to fresh fruit and vegetables that would contain these vitamins, um, it made it difficult for them to actually be able to properly use all the other nutrients that they were bringing in. So it makes it harder for you to process carbohydrates and fats and protein and digest that if you don't have vitamin C. So if that remains untreated, it can lead to a wide range of symptoms, including exhaustion, anemia, bleeding and bruising, pain in the limbs, especially in your legs, swelling of the extremities, and in severe cases, decay of gum tissue and loss of teeth. So, so Swede thus, was in the in severe case of uh, scurvy, exactly. losing some teeth and having some real bad breath. Yeah, and those teeth don't go back in. They so. Do not. Uh, so while scurvy is generally thought of as a maritime disease, it does pop up in other places, especially like in climates where we have long periods of cold temperatures um, that can lead to insufficiencies of ascorbic acid or vitamin C, you know, because those areas typically don't have, you know, as much access to those fresh fruits and vegetables, especially in wintertime. The first known manual of nautical medicine was published in 1617, so about 100 years before the period that we're looking at, and it actually listed lemon juice as, quote, a precious medicine and well-tried for the use of treating scurvy. But it took more than 100 years for it to actually be recognized as a treatment for scurvy and even a, a preventative for scurvy. And even longer for it to be actually implemented. So there was an expedition that took place about 20 years or so after the period that we're looking at here. It was an expedition between 1740 and 1744 of a commander, George Anson, who ended up circumnavigating the, the globe with his fleet uh, during the War of Jenkins' Ear, literally named because a guy named Jenkins got his ear shot off in a naval, naval battle. <laughs> and... Most of the men on board his vessels ended up dying from scurvy. And this inspired a Scotsman named James Lind to start testing out some theories around using vitamin C to treat scurvy. So the failure of Anson's expedition basically led Lind to think a little bit more about this process. And so he actually ended up testing this out on the crew of a ship called the HMS Salisbury. 
And he kind of divided up uh, six pairs of sailors who already had scurvy into different regimens, like gave them different things to eat, different things to drink. Two of them, so one pair ended up lucky enough that they got to eat two oranges and a lemon every day. And they recovered within six full days, like were fully ready to get back into action. Everybody else died. So, I mean, those two guys are pretty lucky that they got, you know, the actual, (laughs) you know, it really proved that this was something vital to what they needed. Uh, Lind published his findings on scurvy in 1753, but the British Admiralty didn't actually adopt his recommendations for the Royal Navy until 1795. And then the merchant marine, kind of like your, your average shipping vessels and so forth, they really didn't start adopting this more often until the 1860s. I mean, we're talking about over 100 years later. So, you know, the actual adoption of these medical practices and so forth, and it's very slow going at this yeah. point in time. Well, you know, shout out to the Scots for always coming in with some sort of medical <laughs> exactly. cure because they've done it time and time again. Absolutely. I mean, even later, there were some polar expeditions that didn't take this, you know, citrus thing seriously. And, you know, many explorers met unnecessary deaths because, you know, they didn't have the proper nutrients. So I read an article as well that was quite interesting about another form of treating scurvy and also kind of like as a preventative. And this comes from indigenous and First Nations peoples in North America who you know, often lived in colder climates, like, for example, up in Canada and in kind of the northern portion of, of what is today, today the United States. And they faced similar circumstances without having access to fresh fruits and vegetables for large portions of, portions of the year. And they actually treated scurvy with a tea that they made from coniferous trees like the spruce tree. We don't know exactly which species of tree they used. We just know it was some kind of a conifer uh, based on some of the writings that Europeans made from around the time period. We know that actually ended up helping save part of Jacques Cartier's crew that was exploring parts of the territory claimed by France in the 17th century. So there's even some indication this may have even been a more effective treatment than actually citrus itself. But uh, I thought that was an interesting aside, you know, just as kind of like, you know, more than one way to, to do this sort of thing. In terms of treating some of these illnesses and ailments that pirates came up with during their time on board, their vessels. Um, one of the, the key things that pirates, you know, had to really get their hands on was medicine, uh, something that you know obviously they could find when they raided ships. Um, but sometimes they took it a little bit further. And I thought I would share a little bit of an episode in the spring of 1718 when Steed Bonnet and Edward Teach actually end up blockading an entire city to try to get medicine. <laughs> so <laughs> we're looking at around April of 1718. Bonnet and Teach are sailing north from the Bahamas towards Charleston in the Carolina colony. Well, by this point in time, it would be South Carolina. And some of the crew were suffering from an unnamed illness. We don't know exactly what it was, but most likely based on just some of the, I guess, the context around what we're looking at, most likely it is believed to have been syphilis, of course, a venereal disease or a sexually transmitted illness. And the surgeon on board did not have the appropriate medicines to be able to treat them. One of the most common treatments for syphilis at this point in time was mercury, which of course has its own problems. And we'll get back to that shortly. 
After raiding a number of vessels off of Florida and gaining some intelligence, they were trying to kind of figure out, you know, is it going to be feasible for us to actually sail up to Charleston and get what we need? Um, They end up uh, learning that no Royal Navy vessels were prowling off of Charleston Harbor. So it was pretty much safe and open for them to be able to head up that way. And it would let them kind of swarm in and take care of what they needed to. So Blackbeard's fleet arrives off of Charleston on May 22nd, 1718. And they seize the pilot boat that's coming out of Charleston before it could sail back into the town and raise an alarm. Basically, a pilot boat is like, it's a small vessel that would sail in alongside of larger vessels to help navigate around like sandbars and kind of natural obstructions and things, especially if you weren't familiar with actually navigating in and out some of these harbors. So they were basically just like an aid to some of the bigger vessels. And the fleet, uh, by this point in time, Blackbeard's fleet is made up of four vessels, and they're able to kind of spread out across the entrance to the harbor and wait for ships to fall into their arms, essentially coming out of the town of Charleston. So they're, they're kind of a few miles offshore, but they're kind of like a big net out there just waiting and prowling around for ships to come out. And they end up capturing five outbound vessels within days. And of course, along with that, hoping to gain valuable goods and information, One of those ships happens to be named the Crowley, which I find absolutely (laughs) hilarious uh, because I know that the fandom of OFMD often overlaps with that of the Good Omens uh, fandom. We have a merchant vessel called the Crowley, uh, and it was carrying tar, pitch, and rice out of Carolina. Of course, naval stores and rice, very important uh, trading aspects. And it also had a number of paying passengers on board, you know, people who are actually sailing on board the vessel. And a number of them were very well-to-do Charlestonians who happened to be quite the ladies and gentlemen. The passengers, as a result, were gathered on board the Queen Anne's Revenge, and the pirates had to deliberate whether or not to send a boat into Charleston to demand a ransom now for these captives. They had (laughs) taken them hostage. And, quote, if they were refused, they would threaten to not only kill all the captives and burn their vessels, but also to sail into Charleston Harbor, sink all the ships there, and perhaps attack the town itself. So this kind of like leads us to believe that they were pretty desperate to get their hands on this medicine. They were like, we're going to go all out (laughs) to be able to do this. That was pretty much worrying them. The only ransom they demanded for the release of those hostages was a chest of medicines containing, they had a whole list drawn up by the ship's surgeon who was on board. And the total value of those medicines was about 400 pounds at that point in time. And I did some calculations to try to figure out how much that would cost today. And it's about 66,000 pounds today, which is a a large chunk of money. (laughs) Exactly. So they end up sending in one of the captives, a man named Mr. Marks, uh, along with two emissaries, two pirates, to go in and try to negotiate and get the medicines. And basically, Teach was like, you don't come back in two days with the medicine, then we are going to make these threats a reality. So along the way, I mean, this, again, (laughs) cannot get more comedic here because, and I think, you know, this is where I think David Jenkins and crew hit a gold mine in the (laughs) actual historical record here, because some of the stuff that happens to Bonnet and Teach's crews is just, it's so farcical. You can't make it up. Um, And so (laughs) along the way, these two pirates and this hostage end up they're they're in a small dinghy and they end up capsizing when a squall comes up and you know it's like a small storm just kind of it capsizes them their boat is gone and they are able to swim to safety on a small uninhabited island 
hoping that someone's going to come along and be able to rescue them. Again, they're several miles outside of Charleston proper, and basically the clock is ticking on them now. They've got two days to get this medicine and get back to Blackbeard, or everyone's going to die. And they realize that they might end up having to be their own rescue. So they assemble a makeshift raft. And, uh, and part of it evidently was like, they found part of what was like the door or a hatch to like, a had been on a vessel for like a, a lower level or something like that. And they create this raft and they paddle through the night because they're trying to make up time. They're trying to get to Charleston still, still nearly nine miles away. And they come upon some fishermen. (laughs) I just think about the fish fishermen and, uh, the pilot episode, the first episode, (laughs) but they come upon these fishermen and they're basically like, we need you to sail out to Blackbeard's ship and tell him that we've had this problem. We're still trying to take care of everything. We're heading to Charleston. Don't worry. Don't kill anybody. That sort of thing. And, you know, they weren't so worried about trying to get to Charleston. They were like, you tell him now so that we can get you know (laughs) everything taken care of. And supposedly this, of course, uh, set uh, him into just an absolute, like just fit of rage. Um, (laughs) The fishermen, you know, tell Blackbeard what's going on. And he was furious. Um, The delay in the return with these medical supplies and so forth, evidently he started threatening the hostages even more. Uh, One source said that he swore a thousand times that they should not only die, but every Carolina man (laughs) that hereafter should fall into his hands would also die. Um, So he's like, you know, fed up with all of it. So the deadline is passed, but actually Teach doesn't kill anyone. I, you know, I'm always like, I always question all these sources that talk about how pirates were so bloodthirsty because in some ways they, they really kind of, especially Edward Teach seemed to be kind of like, I don't know, very uh, merciful in a way, especially to not non-pirates and non like Navy individuals. Another two days pass, and he decides to sail to Charleston himself and start attacking the town. So he's like, I've had enough. We're all just, like, heading in there. And the Queen Anne's Revenge, all four ships just head into Charleston Harbor proper. Now, by this point in time, the emissaries, the two pirates and Mr. Marks, have made their way into Charleston. Marks quickly makes his way to the home of the governor, Robert Johnson, trying to get, you know, everything taken care of. But he gets separated from the two pirates who accompany him, (laughs) who have since holed up in a nearby tavern, and they are drinking away with old friends from Nassau. You've got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. It gets better. One of the one of the pirates that was with this group, um, his last name was Richards, and he was the acting captain of the Revenge of Steed Bonnet's vessel. And he and the other pirate emissary evidently even were like striding down the street in Charleston, just kind of like living it up. And there are sources that say they were like people who were like both kind of like responding with indignation, but also a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, they're pirates. How cool. You know, like admiring them and being like, they were like celebrities in a way (laughs) in Charleston. Because again, like, you know, piracy was not, you know, this was a bad thing kind of thing. And, you know, and it's just hilarious to think about that. I just kind of think about like, you know, I don't know, Pete and, and who knows somebody else. I always just think about Pete in this situation, but maybe, I don't know, somebody else, 
on board the Revenge who got, you know, this job of taking this hostage in. And again, I mean, we had the hostage situation yeah, in uh, man, episode I really, two. I really is, want to see this scenario play out in OFMD because it would be so funny. <laughs> it would be great. So, okay, what ends up happening? Um <laughs> Evidently, one writer actually says they didn't remember their mission until a day or two later they heard screaming on the streets outside. Blackbeard's fleet had arrived in the harbor, frightening inhabitants so badly that one primary source says women and children ran about the street like mad things. So (laughs) eventually... They were afraid that Blackbeard was going to murder them all. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you think about the kind of stories. stories. Yeah. Yeah. The stories that had been told about people like Edward Teach and, you know, by this point in time, probably Steve Bonnet as well. And they had already been, you know, facing harassment from Charles Vane and, and Christopher Moody and so forth. So they were really just like, you know, about to lose their shit about all of this. It finally kind of comes to an end when these drunken pirates end up getting down to the waterfront and they're like, oh, hey guys, you know, like, it's all good. We've, <laughs> we've got everything taken care of. <laughs> exactly. So they prevent their colleagues from exacting retribution on the town at that point in time. I wonder what happened to those two <laughs> pirates, though, when they got back on the ship. Like, Blackbeard must have had I don't know. cow. Like, what were you doing for all those days you were in Charleston? <laughs> exactly. Like, you had oh, the medicine. Just... What the heck? Well, actually, they didn't have the medicine. The two of them didn't. It was Marks well, that had yeah, it, yeah. and they had gotten separated. But, they were but in by this point, of time, sure that he got the yeah. stuff back to Blackbeard. Exactly. Well, Marks does return to the fleet with the chest of medicines, and he also brings an offer of pardon for Blackbeard from the governor. But it was swiftly refused. He was like, "No, thank you." I like the being captives. An Exactly. The captives on, from the Crowley uh, were released as well as their vessels, and the fleet, uh, the pirate fleet, was able to leave with medicines, some provisions, a few barrels of rice, which of course would have been helpful as well, 4,000 pieces of eight, which was about a thousand pounds in that period of time. Today, that would be about 166,500 pounds. So a nice chunk of change. And they also made off with all the clothing that the gentlemen were wearing on board the Crowley. Now, they I stripped them naked. That was for. <laughs> and sent them on their way. So um, the pirates had a new change of clothes at this point in time. Um, in the end, had several <laughs> changes of clothes. Exactly. Uh, Blackbeard's fleet had taken plunder worth about 2,000 pounds, but he had paralyzed Charleston for nearly a week. And Charleston, of course, being a major harbor, tons and tons of trade coming in and out. And they pretty much kept it from, from being able to do business for, for nearly a week. So uh, pretty successful in, in that kind of sense. Of course, too, also by this point in time, the Queen Anne's Revenge, like I said, had had uh, become the, the lead flagship for a pretty large fleet. You know, there's four ships sailing together. Um, the Queen Anne's Revenge was mounted itself with 40 guns, and there were some three to 400 men on board all four vessels. So, you know, they had the, the sloop Revenge, of course, and they also had two smaller sloops that they had captured as prizes, which served as tenders for them. And I was trying to come up a little bit more with, like, information about what a tender actually is because you know we hear that term in OFMD and kind of of course you know sending out a tender could be like an offer but it could also simply mean a naval vessel that attended to other naval vessels maybe carrying provisions between vessels and things like that so they kind of had like a an intermediary role in a sense they had a pretty large fleet overall um 
Contemporary reports also say that Bonnet was actually on board the QAR with Teach during this whole situation, but he had no command. So at this point in time, it seems like Blackbeard is kind of calling the shots. Charleston would have also been a pretty good target for them because it was already in a, a precarious position. Like I said, they had already been facing some issues with pirates like Vane and Moody, but they had also been seeing some kind of like internal conflict because of nearby indigenous tribes like the Creeks and Catawbas who were fighting back against the Charlestonians, mostly because one of the other major kind of economic um, situations in South Carolina was a very large uh, trade in enslaving Native Americans. So they're shipping a lot of people out of Charleston to be enslaved in the Caribbean at this point in time. So, you know, they're kind of facing an unstable situation to begin with. And so Blackbeard comes in and makes it even more unstable. So what do we know based on the QAR archaeological site about all of this? Uh, Because it's not but a few months later that the Queen Anne's Revenge ends up sinking in Beaufort Harbor. And are there any artifacts on board to tell us more about medicine and perhaps these medicines that came from Charleston? Well, there were brass weights found on board that probably were used for measuring medicinals, as well as a brass apothecary mortar and pestle that would have been part of a surgeon's kit, you know, to be able to weigh out and then also to prep medicines for consumption. And this actually might have been something that was part of that chest of medicines that Blackbeard got his hands on at Charleston. But of course, knowing that one of the common illnesses treated by people on board these vessels was syphilis, which I will not go into detail on all of the, uh, the symptoms that go you along with that. that. Um, ooh, there's a really, there's a really <laughs> great episode. I don't remember the episode number, but another podcast that I love, if you love history, it's called dig history and they have an entire episode on syphilis and it is it's something else. So I'll let you check that out on your own. But one of the things, one of the most unique things that was found on board the QAR site was a urethral syringe. And I remember in, I think it would be 2008, when I was taking a North Carolina history class at UNC Wilmington, our professor had Mark Wilde Ramsing, who is one of the major archaeologists, underwater archaeologists working on the QAR site. He came and did a presentation for us. And this is still very early on. I think they had only just actually confirmed that this was the QAR. And Wilde Ramsing was kind of showing slides and pictures of different artifacts. And I remember very vividly him showing this actual picture of the urethral syringe. And I mean, it's huge. It's it's made of pewter. And just talking about how it would have been used. Essentially, you know, it has this curved funnel tip that would be used to administer mercury. Uh, and that would be the treatment typically for syphilis. And they actually have done analysis of any kind of residue that might be on the inside of that syringe. And there were some low concentrations of mercury. Of course, now we know that that is quite poisonous. Um, so I guess you could you know, either die from syphilis or die from mercury poisoning. You know, it's kind of like what they say, pick your poison. Um, But (laughs) the plunger itself on the syringe actually has a mark that indicates it was made in Paris in 1701 or 1708. 
date, and that the maker was someone named Laurent Chatelaine, um, who was a pewterer in Paris between 1689 and 1724. So it's so cool how they can actually like pinpoint some of this stuff, you know, to specific time periods or specific places with that kind of information. But yeah, that one stuck with me for a while and yeah, kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies when you think about it. But but you know, if they were uh, living it up and uh, having fun either on board or when they go into port, you know, they probably did encounter some pretty nasty stuff out there. So, so all in all, what do you think, Pam? Do you think you would survive on a pirate vessel? Eh, I don't know. All the <laughs> maggots and rats and stuff. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Diseases. Yeah. It really kind of sucks the fun out of it but hey you know at at least it was better than being in the navy it seems so (laughs) i would pick being a pirate over being in the navy for sure certainly it seems that the portrayal of food and medicine and that sort of thing amongst the crew of the revenge and our flag means death is a bit more um optimistic perhaps (laughs) than what the actual reality of life was for pirates you might even say it makes it more palatable (laughs) Oh, dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Oh, how punny. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, like you look at some of the things that are depicted and it's like, yeah, it's not quite reality. Obviously, if the Swede was already losing his teeth, then he's probably done for. But, you know, also, you know, you've got some other uh, feats of uh, medicine, you might say, or actually hands. Hands in specific, because, uh, you know, we've also got poor Lucius, who ends up losing a finger due to infection. And not to mention all the stabbings that they just kind of miraculously get over within a day or two. <laughs> I know. I always think about that, that what is it, episode four, when you have, you know, the, the official meeting, really, between... Ed and Steed and, and, you know, Ed's like, well, don't move around too fast because your guts will start popping out. And then it's like, well, dude's walking around and like playing dress up like two hours later. And you're like, you guys are like (laughs) both up in the crow's nest, like mimicking a lighthouse. You could have gotten someone other than Steed to help you do it. (laughs) Exactly. Instead, you both are up there when he should be in bed. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's quite a lot to uh, to consider there, but we love it for the <laughs> comedy. Obviously, you know, we know that it's not supposed to be like a biopic or anything like that. It's our own little world of fantasy. So some of those more realistic elements we can we can let slide as well as some anachronisms, because sadly, orange marmalade wasn't invented yet at that point in time. So, uh, oh, well, another thing we can thank the Scots for. Exactly. From Dundee. All right. Well, we, this has been pretty fun. You know, obviously uh, a few things that didn't sound so great. Uh, Hope we didn't ruin your dinner for you, but so I'm going to throw it over to Pam now who has a little bit of pirate lingo for us to learn this week. So, Our pirate lingo for this week is a term called pistol proof. And there's kind of a few different things associated with this, a few different sources and definitions. So one definition is that kind of like pistol proof is indicative of a very lucky person. And kind of related to that is would be a name given to a pirate who is never hit by enemies' bullets. Ooh. So you know, pistol proof. 
I like it. And then um, there's also kind of like, it could also have been a way that crew members wished each other luck for a raid, perhaps. Ooh. Um, I got inspiration for this particular uh, term from a local brewery here in Wilmington. It's called, actually called Edward Teach Brewing. Um, they we have, love Edward Teach Brewing. Yeah, they have a German-style lager that's called Pistol Proof, and they had a little blurb on the side of the can about it, so... Yeah, pistol proof. Fun stuff. They also have a fun uh, beer as well called Teaches Peaches. And every time I just think about like an image of Ed with like a little peach emoji over his bum. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really good peach ale though, man. Oh, it's so good. I haven't had it in a while, but yeah. It's great. Yeah. We love it. It's a great little brewery, and if you are ever in southeastern North Carolina, you should come check it out. It's in an old firehouse built in, I think, 1907, and when you go inside, like, the way they've done the architecture inside, it's actually like being in a ship. It's like it's a pirate super cool. ship. Yeah. We might have to do a tour of it for the Patreon sometime, so yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, stay pistol-proof, friends. Have a great week, and... uh We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Electric Kelpie Media. All research was conducted by Kimberly Sherman and Pam Sherman. Find us online at electrickelpymedia.com slash oranges and on social media at Podcast Oranges.